What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey guys, what's up? Normally you don't hear Chris or I before the theme song to our podcast, but in this instance, there was a little bit of an echo problem with the interview that we did with Dr. Ali. We thought it was a good enough interview that we wanted to put out. I mean, when's the last time that we had a Nobel Peace Prize winner on our podcast? Pretty much never. So regardless of what the episode sounded like, we wanted to get this thing out. You may hear a little bit of an echo here and there, but if you turn your volume down just a little bit, it helps fix the problem. I tried to clean up the episode as much as possible, but hey, technology does some stuff that we don't expect sometimes, and we just work with it. All right, well, enjoy the interview podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. I hope everybody's pumped today. Today, pumped for another uh, edition of Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. And me and John were just talking about this. This podcast has allowed us to talk to some of the freaking coolest people ever. Like, I, I every every week, I'm so excited. And this week is no different. Um, I think this is the first time we can say we talked to a Nobel Prize winner. I believe you're correct. I don't know. I don't know. We were just discussing this. I don't know if it qualifies. He was on a panel that shared a Nobel Prize. Hey, in my book, that counts. Okay. Well, I'm just, I'm diving right into it, by the way. There's no preface or prelude here. This week, we get to speak with Dr. Richard Alley. He is a geologist and Evan Pugh Professor of Geosciences at Penn State University. He's authored more than 170 scientific publications like I said, he basically won a Nobel Prize in 2007 along with Al Gore. 
for the topic of climate change. That's what we're talking about today. Climate change, we talk a little bit about ice and how you can use ice to factor in climate change and everything. And it's just, he was a fun guy, like really well, sp- I, I don't know the, the analogies he used. I mean, how cool were they? I mean, they were awesome and they completely made it easy for us to follow. And like yourself, I didn't know how the conversation was going to go, if we were going to be able to sit down and talk with him and have it make sense. But he broke it down to us and uh, I think we got it. No, I definitely agree. And, you know, normally we continue telling you about the accomplishments of our guests. This guy is so legit that I don't even know if I want to go into all of them. I mean, you can check out his Wikipedia page, but he's been in like every journal ever. He's basically boys with Al Gore and he's he won the Seligman Crystal in 2005 for his contribution to kind of understanding how ice sheets and whatnot affect global warming. So, Hey, you promised you were going to spare our listeners yeah. of listing off every one of his accomplishments. I don't know. It's just crazy when I looked at it. I'm like, and I just talked to this guy, and he was awesome. He explained things that I probably should have learned in 10th grade geology or whatever, but didn't. Really excited for this episode, guys. You know, it's it's a little bit longer, and you'll notice some of our recent episodes are a little longer, but that's because people are much more receptive to talking to us and having really good conversations. So, But before we get into that, couple of housekeeping things. First of all, make sure you head on over to uh, smartpeoplepodcast.com. We put up, you know, a, a little blog post to go along with it. Tells you a little bit about it. Sometimes we post videos. You can check out previous episodes. We have an episodes tab. You can scroll through if you notice anybody you like. Check it out. A lot of cool stuff going on over there. And of course, the coolest thing is the Amazon widget. Well, I would argue that. I'd say the coolest thing for the month of February is the donate button. Because mm. again, we're giving all the donations through our page to LLS in California. You know, none of it goes to us. So forget the Amazon page for right now. Just go there, hit the donate, donate a little bit to a great cause. We really appreciate it. And aside from that, make sure to follow us on Facebook or Twitter. We got to we, we gotta keep this thing going. We're doubling our Facebook thing recently. It's been insane how much growth we're achieving and the guests we're getting on are even better. Really excited about the future. So for now, kind of sit back, learn a little bit about how we might all burn in a fiery death uh, with this climate change, or perhaps we won't. I don't know. You have to listen. On that note, enjoy the interview. <laughs> I guess I kind of wanted to get uh, more of a sense of, you know, I I know you're a professor and um, you've been dealing with climate change in the past and all that. I wanted to get a sense of, have you always been interested in climate change or um, climatology or, you know, kind of how you got to where you are today and uh, actually what you are kind of working on right now? I like to crawl around in caves when I was in high school and collect rocks and cut and polish them. And then I became a geologist and... The glaciologist had a summer job, and so I started working with him, and I was trying to help him figure out how much it snowed each year by finding the fallout from atomic bombs and ice sheets. (laughs) And then I was working on measuring the thermal conductivity of snow, Um, and then I was working on a little ice core he had gotten from Antarctica, and then I'm old and gray and still having a ball, so... (laughs) That's fantastic. It's always good when you can find something you enjoy doing, you know? Oh, it is. And, it's, and ice is so cool on, on climate. Um, the, the big things on ice, 
the most fun thing on ice, let's be honest, is sort of figuring out how it moves and how it makes the landscape pretty. And we actually do a little work here on that. But people don't usually call up and want to talk about that one. Um, <laughs> the two big ones on ice, one is um, will the ice sheets fall in the ocean and flood the coasts? Right. And the other one is what can we learn about the climate system by reading its history in the ice course? Because the snow is piling up year after year after year, and it has in it records of how much dust is blowing around, um, how much sea salt is blowing around, what the temperature was, how much snow fell that year, what the atmosphere was like that year because it traps bubbles of, of old air. And so you have these very long histories of the climate. And once you become a historian of the climate, you sort of have to talk about the climate. So. Now, you mentioned ice cores. For our listeners that don't understand what that is, can you explain a little bit on what an ice core actually is and a little bit of the background about how you go extracting these ice cores? Absolutely. So so Greenland and Antarctica have these ice sheets on them, and an ice sheet is about a two-mile thick, one-continent-wide pile of old snow. And it piles up layer, 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 and then it sort of spreads under its own weight, and it melts on the edges, or it makes icebergs that drift away. Um, in the middle, you get somebody with a big plane to fly up in the middle, and you're sitting there on two miles of ice. And if you've ever seen anyone put a doorknob in, you, you get a drill, and the drill has got a little pipe on the end, and the pipe has got teeth on the end of that, and you spin it, and it just cuts into the door, and pretty soon you take a cylinder of of wood out of the door, and then you're done. But you can take a pipe and put teeth on the end of it and put it against the the ice and spin it, and pretty soon you pull out three feet of uh, ice, and then you put the drill back down the hole, and you pull up three feet more, and then you pull up three feet more, and you just keep going until you got two miles of ice. And um, lying there is these cylinder, they sort of look like plexiglass. Um, and you get this thing that's a few inches across and a few feet long, and it's layered. And those layers are the summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, the snow when it piled up. Um, and, it, you know, it's sort of really high-tech simple. Um, the drill is... You've got to put a fluid in the hole so the weight of the ice doesn't squeeze the hole closed, and you've got to keep the hole, the drill from sort of spinning crazily, um, and you've got to make sure it goes straight down, and you've got to make sure that you um, don't break the ice when you pull it out, and a whole bunch of things. So it's really high-tech, but the basic idea is the same as drilling a hole through the door. So I'm a little confused. I'm trying to think about how to word this. If you are drilling down and you're getting these um, layers of ice, that means that every year, every season, I mean, technically every second, right, the ice is expanding or, or growing or getting thicker? Yeah. You've got it. Okay, you're really good at this. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do an analogy for a minute. Okay, so you pour pancake batter on a griddle and you watch it and it sits there and spreads and it may drip off the edge if you pour too much on mm -hmm. okay so while it's sitting there spreading you pour another layer of pancake batter on top and they're both spreading and dripping off the edge and now you pour another layer on and another and another and another and another now the one on the bottom is getting pretty thin now because it's been spreading for a long time and the ones on top are a little bit thicker, that's an ice sheet. 
so the snow piles up and then it spreads under its own weight and then it drips off the edges and icebergs. Um, and more piles on top and it spreads and more piles on top and it spreads. And so the thickness of the layers is smaller at the bottom because they've been spreading for a long time. They get really long and thin and the ends break off and make icebergs. Huh. Okay. No, that's actually a really good analogy in an, in an odd way. So I definitely understand it a little better. Um, cool. So, so when you pull this out, what do you see? And, and from that, what can you determine? I mean, what's it look like? How do, what do these sheets look like? And then what can you, you know, what information can you gather from that? Yep. So at the top, it looks like a piece of ice with bubbles in it. Um, and it's sort of whitish. Um, and the ice itself is clear, and then the bubbles make it look white. When you get deeper, the the pressure is getting higher and higher and higher, and eventually the air in the bubbles actually combines with the ice, and it makes little things called clathrates. And then the whole ice is just clear, and it just looks like a cylinder of plexiglass. So if you can imagine picking up a, a piece of plastic that's um, you know a few feet long and a few inches across, and almost perfectly clear, um, you better be wearing gloves or we're going to yell at you because we want to keep the ice in good shape. But that's that's all it is. And so it, it has these layers in it. In there, we can actually identify annual layers in, in a lot of the course. If you go to a place that it snows enough that a year is thicker than a snowdrift, um, you actually can count annual layers. And the summer snow and the winter snow look a little different. They are chemically different, they have different dust, they have different isotopes, um, you can sample them electrically and, and the electrical is different from summer to winter and you really can sort of sit there and go summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, winter and we can check ourselves. So um, that first thing I was doing with Ian Willensies many years ago when I was an undergrad, we know that in 1954, there was an atmospheric test of a really big, dirty atomic bomb, and that blew stuff into the stratosphere, and in 1955, it fell out all over the world. And um, so you can count down, summer, winter, summer, winter, we should find the fallout right here. Well, you go and look, and there it is. And um, in Greenland, 1783, um, Ben Franklin is over in Paris working for the the young United States, and these dry fogs start blowing across. And Ben says, wow, there must be a big volcano erupting somewhere. And in fact, it was a terrible thing in Iceland because it was lucky and it was poisoning the pastures and causing all sorts of trouble. The ash from Lockie blows to Greenland. And so you count down to 1783, and there's the ash from Lockie. And you can analyze it chemically and say, this really is Lockie. And here it is in the year we thought was 1783. We know that that's the year 1783, so we got it right. That's, that's and so, amazing. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. And you can do Elgin, Hecla, and Catla, and Vesuvius, and Etna. And so as long as we have recorded history, you can find the volcanoes of recorded history lying in the ice core. That's crazy. And I guess that kind of leads into, you know, obviously I want to talk to you about climate change and then how you how you've learned about it through this this method that you use with the ice cores and everything. But first, I guess I wanted to say, should the fact that you can test yourself, right, test your findings 
and know the histories and know you're on track, should that kind of be proof to those that don't believe that you can garner information from this? Should that be proof like, look, we can? I mean, we're, we're right on point. That's, that's science. You know, when we did annual layer counting in Greenland, I counted, and Tony Cow counted, and Mace counted, and um, Kurt Cuffey counted, and we, I do it, and then they do it, and then we compare. You don't tell them your answer first. You tell them your answer later and see if you get the same one. And we were looking at it, and Ken Taylor was doing it electrically, and Pete Grutus was doing it isotopically, and Michael Ram was doing it with a laser. And then we're comparing to um, Greg Zielinski's record of the volcanoes and a bunch of other things. So we do this, you know, when I say that age is 10,000 years, it is based on a huge number of tests and inner comparisons and trying very, very, very hard not to fool ourselves so that it really is reliable. And that's one of the things that I think is really important about science. Um, I have some – there's a few people in the world know my name because of work I did on the ice core. But if I hadn't done that work, it wouldn't make any difference because Ken Taylor did his work and Pete Grutus did his work and all these other people did. And the Europeans were doing a parallel car, doing parallel measurements and getting essentially the same answer. And so when we get to the point that I'll tell you that the scientific evidence is really strong at that, and then I'll tell you whatever it is, if my research got thrown away, nothing would change or if any individual's research got thrown away, nothing would change because it's been tested so many times by so many different people in so many different ways that nobody really matters anymore. Right. You know, if, we, they give, if they give an award to somebody for their science, that somebody's science doesn't matter anymore because it's been tested so many other ways that you could make them go away and it wouldn't matter. Right. <laughs> we actually talked to, I can't remember exactly which scientist it was, but they, uh, along the similar lines, they said, you know, people need to realize that the stuff that these scientists come up with is pretty well tested because there's so many other scientists who want to prove them wrong. It's actually like a, a notch on the belt if you can prove a well-known theory incorrect. Absolutely. So, so think about this for a minute. If you go down to Washington and you go right next to the mall, there's a statue of Albert Einstein down there in front of the National Academy. Okay. Now suppose that Albert Einstein had spent his whole life, and at the end of his life he said, I have spent a life doing science, and the only thing I learned is that Newton got it right, and I have nothing to add. Would there be a statue of Einstein on the mall? Right, exactly. No, it would be just Newton. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we scientists, and let's, you know, I, I like scientists. I love being a scientist. I have great colleagues, but there's sometimes just a little bit of ego that'll sneak into a scientist <laughs> just occasionally. A little. <laughs> <laughs> and, and could you possibly imagine that we would all not? overthrow somebody else and get the statue right right no i'm serious that's it's a great argument now i guess i do want to jump into what's on everybody's mind and you know what is the most pressing issue and one that you are and have become a leading expert on is climate change first i guess it's tough i don't really have a point in question because it's such a large topic but first i guess i wanted to ask in the most succinct way how can you explain climate change for those that obviously know about it but many just know 
yeah, I saw Al Gore's movie or something, you know, and that's all they know about it. Boy, how do you do this? Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Your gas tank. You, you know, if you've got a big gas tank, you put in um, 16 gallons or so, that's 100 pounds of gas. And when you burn it, you add oxygen, it makes 300 pounds of CO2, and it blows away into the air, and you don't see it. Um, if you drive your car, you're putting out about a pound a mile of CO2 from the tailpipe. If our cars packaged CO2 the way our transportation system used to package its waste. Okay, if you can imagine horse floppies coming out of your tailpipe. Right. It's a pound of CO2 a mile. We would cover every road in America an inch deep every year. In a decade, there would be no joggers in America. We'd all be cross-country skiers. Okay. I love that. Um, I mean, this is literally the best description so ever. Yeah. So, so, so it's real. We, oil companies are really, really good, and they get us this stuff at, at a, a remarkably efficient way. And it really does a huge amount of good for us, but CO2 is real. Now, we have known for more than a century that CO2 interacts with energy in the atmosphere. And right after World War II, the Air Force says, we've got to understand this. Now, the Air Force wasn't doing climate change, but they were doing heat-seeking missiles. And if you want to shoot down the enemy bomber with your heat-seeking missile, and you put a sensor on your your missile that looks in the wrong wavelength, it can't see the target because the CO2 is in the way. And that's really all we need to know, is that oil companies have been doing us a huge amount of good by getting us a huge amount of oil that we burn to do things we want to know, and the CO2 is there and it interacts with energy. And those two pieces say that we must ultimately be tweaking the climate. And it's really so. And you very rarely hear people argue about this because there really isn't much to argue about. Um, you, if you turn on the evening news, the weather person will show you the um, the water vapor loop. The water vapor loop really is a satellite looking at the greenhouse effect of water vapor. They could show you the CO2 loop because it's sort of boring because CO2 is better mixed, but. Um, but it's observed by satellite every day. It's real. CO2 affecting the radiation balance of the planet, which affects the climate, is – there's not much to argue about because there really isn't much uncertainty there. But we are doing this, and if we keep burning fossil fuels and we keep changing the composition of the atmosphere, that has to have an influence on the climate and with really, really high scientific confidence, and we don't know how to get out of that. Yeah, I was going to say it's – it's almost as if the argument of climate change doesn't exist because, I mean, you know, you step outside and it's hotter now than it was 10 years ago, than it was 20 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. But I think where the main argument comes in is, is man really the driving force of this climate change? And I think that's right. what people you know, okay. end up arguing about. And, and our best estimate is that, in fact, we, we have done some sun blocking. We, we put particles up from our smokestacks that block the sun and make it a little cooler. And we cut dark forests and plant slightly lighter wheat fields, and that makes it a little cooler. And um, if anything, the sun has gotten a little dimmer over the last few decades, which makes it a little cooler. And despite a little push from nature towards cooler and a fairly big push from humans towards cooler, it's gotten warmer. 
And the warming is it staggers from year to year, but if you get any long enough window that you, you sort of average over the weather, it is getting warmer. And it's getting warmer in thermometers, and it's getting warmer if the thermometers are analyzed by NASA or by NOAA or by Berkeley or by the British. And it's getting warmer in thermometers outside of cities and thermometers in the ground and thermometers in the ocean and thermometers on balloons and thermometers looking down from space. Um, it's getting warmer if you average over the staggers of the weather with, with high confidence. And yet we – the sun a little bit and humans by blocking the sun with our particles have been trying to make it cooler. So you ask how much of the warming that's happened has been caused by our greenhouse gases, and it's probably more than all of it. Um, and there are several greenhouse gases. It's not just CO2. And, yes, the sun did get brighter 50 years ago, but since then it's sort of stabilized or gotten a little bit dimmer. And so, yeah, nature changes climate, no doubt about that. A huge number of things that nature can do to climate. And a lot of my research has been trying to understand those. But if anything, nature has been trying to cool it a little bit. We've been trying to cool it a little bit with our sun-blocking particles, but it's gotten warmer. You know, and here's what blows my mind, because being able to say, look, it's not really – this isn't up for debate anymore is crazy because I always think about – my dad tells me, you know, when we said we're going to put a man on the moon – we did it from the time it was proposed to the time it happened. And again, I wasn't born yet, but I think it was like 10 years, right? And yep. if we can do that stuff, I don't understand why. And for everybody that hates the government, fine, I get it. But I don't understand why we can't just say, look, we spend a bajillion dollars on like all this ridiculous stuff, like airplane, like a, a new fighter. Why can't we dedicate our resources, say we're going to fix it, take every crappy car off the road, put in a 50 mile per gallon or 100 or electric, put in a Tesla, whatever, and just fix it. Just do it. Just get it done. Like, why can that we, not happen? We can do it, but we've got to want to do it. And it's not going to be easy. You know, it, it, this isn't falling off a log easy. But, um, but we've got to get to the point of saying we look at each other and we look at people on the other side of the aisle and we all shake hands and say this is what we want to do. And I think one of the things that I've tried to work on fairly hard, there are people in the world who jump immediately from we are changing the climate with high scientific confidence to we should take away your pickup truck or whatever. Right. They jump immediately to policies. And I think it's really important at this point to back up and say, no, the science does not tell you what to do. Um, let me do an analogy, if I may. Um, a weather forecaster tells you it's going to be warm this week. It's July or something. Okay, so so the weather forecaster tells you it's going to be warm. You know that there's uncertainty attached to that. Weather forecasters do make mistakes. They do have uncertainties, but the weather forecasters are skillful. You know what to do with that. You take the weather forecast. The weather forecast does not tell you whether to have the picnic or not. It gives you information that you can use, and you put that information in the pot with everything else that you know, and you make decisions. Now, weather and climate – weather is predicting the next spin of the roulette wheel, and climate is predicting that, in fact, the house is going to make money at the end of the day. But otherwise, they're sort of the same thing. If we make a climate prediction for a few decades out, if you keep burning fossil fuels, then it gets warmer. The confidence in that is high. It's not perfect. 
voted is high, and that doesn't tell you what to do. It is useful information that you can put in the pot with everything else, and you know your national security, your jobs, your what have you, and then you can make wise decisions. And we know from the weather forecasters that including the science with everything else makes us better off. Now, and I truly believe that this is the case with the, the climate, that it doesn't tell you what to do, but including it in your decision-making with its uncertainties and its strength will make us better off. Now, I believe you had had said something a while back, and please you know, tell me if I'm misquoting you, but you had mentioned that if we just studied this climate and the climate change, it would only take about 10 years and 1% of what the economy produces – do you still think that to be accurate? And is that – am I quoting you correctly there? It's, it's, uh, the, the, the optimum path sort of says that you don't try to do things much faster than 30 years. So, so this gets interesting that um, if, if we were to say panic, we've got to change right now. Okay, um, I have to walk home. My wife can't pick me up, and um, the people who have flown the meetings have to walk home. You know that would be a disaster. Um, even if you try to make huge changes over a few years, there's people who decided to work for oil companies and coal companies who made honest decisions. You know, and they have mortgages, and they, you know, and if we said, okay, sorry, you're out of work, walk home, um, there's a real problem there. And so when the economists have looked at this, what they keep saying over and over is the best thing economically is to start really slowly to get off fossil fuels, but to make it really clear to everyone that in 30 years, changing the climate is going to get expensive. Either you want to switch away from fossil fuels or you burn the fossil fuels and put the CO2 back in the ground. And that if you do that, the people who honestly took their jobs and made their investment will retire in their jobs and get their investment back. And the next generation will be making decisions knowing that that change is coming. Now, the other thing that the economists say is that if we had started this 10 years ago, we'd probably be better off. You can't wait 30 years and then start. Um, analogy time. Um, the captain sees the iceberg way ahead. The captain turns just a little bit. It's real easy to go around the iceberg. The captain waits until the iceberg is looming over the bow and then starts to turn, and you're surely going to dump a few drinks and knock a few people over, and you might, might crash the ship. If you want to deal with climate change, starting early and slowly – works, waiting until everybody is convinced that it's already happening and they're in trouble before you start to turn, it's hard, because then people who made honest decisions about jobs and investments and so on end up losing money and losing their houses and what have you, and it's a bad thing. I love that analogy as well. I guess maybe I learned better in analogies, but <laughs> one of the things you mentioned earlier was how we are emitting things from smokestacks and all this that actually cool it. And I know that I'll talk to people sometimes about climate change, and I'm fairly passionate about it. And they'll say, you know, look, we'll fix it. Like, we fix everything, right? It's, it's going to be okay. People are going to go on and on. And I think, okay, how are we going to fix it? Well, we'll probably come up with some scientific way to just do it. You know, and so I'm thinking maybe we'll purposely blast things into the atmosphere to, like, block sun rays or something or, or maybe we'll go and you know 
take another planet over or something like are these (laughs) viable options or are these things that actually get discussed you know how we can manufacture artificial ozone if you will Oh, absolutely. So, so it's called geoengineering, and there's plenty of people are thinking about it, but there's a lot of worries. So we could, we know that if we put up particles that we can block the sun and make it cooler, if we put them up in the stratosphere above the rain, they'd stay up longer. So we wouldn't have to put up as, as we wouldn't have to put them up as fast because they'd stay up longer. Um, there's some worries about what that does to the ozone, and that is an issue. Um, putting them up is not simply anti-greenhouse gas, and among other things, it tends to make the world a little drier. Um, it keeps the sun from beating down on the ocean to warm the surface to make the water evaporate to make it rain, and so you end up with probably with less rain if you put the particles in the stratosphere, and then. What do you do internationally if somebody gets a drought because you're trying to keep it cold and they decide they got the drought because your pipe was putting particles in the stratosphere to keep you from melting? Um, And what do you do if they shoot your pipe down? And who decides where to set the sun blocking? And um, what happens if we hold off 100 years of warming and then the system breaks down and we can't fix it and we get all the 100 years of warming in a very few years? Uh, So there's a lot of people thinking about it. It is certainly possible to block the sun in ways that would offset warming, but it's not a perfect offset, and it raises a whole lot of questions of what you're doing to the ozone, what you're doing to the rain, what you're doing to your neighbors. Um, and so no one is done with this yet. The scientific community has not yet gotten together, assessed what we know, and says this is the best answer. But there's a whole lot of nervousness that this is not as simple as we'll put up a sunshade and be done with it. Yeah, <laughs> I wish it was. And, you know, that's interesting that you that you kind of went that route, because I was thinking I can only go off of uh, what I experience here in Washington, D.C. area in terms of weather and then what I see on the news. But a couple of years ago, we had snowpocalypse, most snow we've ever had in like 100 years. And then this year we're having the I don't know, one of the driest winters we've ever had or something. And then there was a tornado that was a mile wide and went I don't, I can't even, I can't quote the things, but went forever. And there's all this stuff. It is, and this is happening in a condensed period of time. We're talking a couple of years. So isn't it just completely obvious? Like if this reaches its tipping point, Malcolm Gladwell, then we are screwed. Like we're dead. We're not just in trouble. We're dead. It's I have faith in people. Okay. We're really, really clever. I don't think we even know how to kill ourselves off. We do know how to cause ourselves really serious problems. Okay, so so I think ultimately humans are the ultimate weed. We figure it out somehow. But whether we figure it out without getting a whole lot of people unhappy and having a few wars and things like that is a is a harder question. Um, it's very clear that for decades the scientific community has been saying that global warming will push us in some directions. More record highs, fewer record lows. We're seeing that. Uh, when the conditions are right to rain, um, warmer air has more water in it so it can rain harder, and we're seeing that. And 
And yeah, weather is a really weird thing, and sometimes it surprises you, but we have made some things more likely, and they are happening. And so, so that's pretty clear. Um, a really important thing, though, that you raised is that when we look at the future, you take the best scientific assessment of what we face, and then you say, what's the best response to that to keep the economy humming? And it is, include the science in your decision-making. And then somebody says, well, couldn't it be a little better than you thought? And you say, yeah. And they say, couldn't it be a little worse than you thought? And you say, yeah. And then you say, but could it be really, really, really better? Is there any way that just changing the atmosphere turns this into Eden? And we can't find that. But we find slight chances of causing really bad things. And so it's uh, – analogy again. You're in the D.C. area, right? Do you, do you have to commute by car? Yes. Yep. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's into Washington, D.C., so it is three and a half miles from my house. It takes about 45 minutes. Just a Okay, so I'm sorry. So when you get in the car to commute, you expect 45 minutes, and you turn on the radio, and it's um, the captain and Tennille doing muskrat love. Now, <laughs> the best thing you can hope for is you get on the highway, and, and there's no traffic, and you make it in 25 minutes, and, and it's the Beach Boys medley. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but, you know, some days you get on there and it's it's an hour because somebody had a wreck and they're doing the, the test pattern for the emergency broadcast system. Right. And some days you hope that you never get the day that you get on there and, and somebody with a truck runs over you. But it's, it's possible. And so if you think about what's the most likely outcome, sort of what's the best and what's the worst, there's way more room on the bad side. And that's sort of the way our forecasts of the climate system are as well, our projections. You know, if we keep burning, yeah, we face challenges that we can meet. And it may be a little better than that, and it might. And it may be a little worse than that, but there's a slight chance that we hit some nasty tipping point and we make things really bad. Okay, that is my favorite analogy. It's like, look, you can get to work 20 minutes earlier or you can die. There you go. Okay. Pretty much. I mean, honestly. So so that's that's sort of the thing. And what you do is I bet you've got a car that's got airbags and it's got seat belts and it's got crumple zones. And, and it's um, a hybrid. Yeah, oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> and you've got insurance. And so some fraction of your, your transportation budget is, is devoted to the unlikely but possible disasters that are out there. And so if you were to treat climate change, if we as the world were to treat climate change the way you treat your transportation, then we might be considering whether we wanted to buy a little insurance, slow down a little bit and, and hold the changes down just in case there's a drunk driver out there with our name on it. There's a ton of things that people can do that really would be, I don't want to call them quick fixes, but I guess like quick hits and just just ways to treat the environment a little bit better. Like yourself, you ride your bike to a lot of places. A lot of people live within walking distance of stores, grocery stores, etc. But yet you still see these people. I mean, I live in a community where the cleaners, there's restaurants, bars, grocery store, everything within walking distance. Yet I still see people that live maybe three-tenths of a mile away that still drive to the grocery store. What, yeah. do, you, what do you think is the, the hesitation for people to start riding their bike to work or to start doing these quick hits where they can walk to the grocery store as opposed yeah. to you know making that half-a-mile round trip? 
in their in yeah. their vehicle. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I enjoy it. I walk by the duck pond and see who, who's migrating through just now. It, it really works for me. Uh, there are people that, you know, I know there are people that you, you say conservation and they hear Ben Franklin. They hear Teddy Roosevelt. They hear, of course, this is who I am. This is what I am. I, conservation is, is stewardship of the environment. It's something that I have to do. And there are people that hear their mother tell them to clean up their room, and they get mad about it. <laughs> so, so it's and it is true, you know. And, and all of us have something in us that, that if we get told what to do, we we take umbrage at that. And so my suspicion is that ultimately a lot of this is showing people where the win-win-win is, because there really are wins on all sides. And um, conservation is also saving money. And the, the first steps um, pay you. You know, even if you believe in climate change and you don't believe in, in greenhouse gases and you don't believe in any of that, conservation saves money. Oh, absolutely. And it it blows my mind, too. I mean, like Chris, I, I live about three miles away from my work, and I would love to ride my bike to work, but I would have to ride on one of the biggest – Beltways in the DC area. Yeah, die. I would die. <laughs> I'm dead. sorry. I'll do it. Why? With, with, with this, all this kind of thing is once we get at the point where we look at each other and say, "Wow, you know, it's nice to have these choices." Uh, we're not going to take away your pickup truck if you want your pickup truck, but but in the same sense, can't you help me so that if I want to ride my bicycle, I can do it? At the point where we look at each other and say, "Let's give ourselves choices." I suspect that a lot of people would find out how much fun we're having. Yeah, and you know, okay, so while we're talking about this, a lot of people are going to say, look, ride your bike, you're not saving the planet. You know, I mean, there are people out there that are going to say that. How much impact can can that small stuff have? And if, and I guess as a second question, what things can we do? What things do you recommend? These win-win-wins that you talk about. Right. I mean, it's it's very clear that there are things that our institutions can do for us that we almost don't have to help. The the ozone hole is going to get fixed, and it, it's going to get fixed because there's an international treaty and a couple of inventions that say use this refrigerant and not that refrigerant, and we're all going to do it, and that'll take care of it. And nobody really had to change the, the way they live to do that. Somebody had to invent something really good, and then, then our governments had to get together and agree. And, and we didn't change our lifestyle, and that's going to fix it. There are things that we don't need the government to do. You know, it's – come on. You wash your hands after you use the restroom, and you don't really need a guard standing at the door to make sure you did it. Right? <laughs> right? There are things that are big enough that it's going to take our institutions and our individuals, and if we're really going to change the way we generate energy and the way we sort of move to something that's sustainable for the long term, something that our grandchildren and their grandchildren can do, I think it's going to take cooperation among people and institutions, and I don't think any one thing will do it. Um, I think it really does take – this is sort of like – at the point where we decided that I did not want to drink what was coming out of your bathroom and that we probably really did need sewers and clean water and things like that, um, it really took people and it took their institutions getting together to do that. 
I definitely agree. And I know I promise we're not going to make you walk home. So we'll, we'll get, we'll let you out of here soon. But, um, I did want to uh, kind of end this on a recent development actually just happened today. And it was just, it's interesting that it's in the news right as we get to talk to you. The U S just said it plans to contribute $12 million to a, a six country initiative to help climate change programs through low cost, you know, initiatives, things like clean cooking stoves and, Things like that. And I found this interesting. Um, so uh, Hillary Clinton's the one kind of heading this up. And and it's, I mean, I guess it's a move in the right direction, but $12 million? I mean, that, that's honestly like you giving a, a homeless person one penny. Like, I think they would say no thanks. And I, I don't know, is it more, as long as we have people talking about it and doing something that's better than nothing? Or is it like, come on, let's be real about this? Yeah, it's, it's I, I was at a meeting a while back with the, the great climate scientist Ramanathan, and he's been working on issues of cook stoves and things like that. And these, you know, people who really have terrible health problems because they're, they're sitting there burning dung in, in a stove in a little enclosed space so that they can have a cup of tea and something hot to eat. And you get them a solar stove and and they save time and they save money and they get healthier. And, and so he's been working on this. And it was amazing how far they could get with reasonably small resources. So I honestly don't know whether this is, is proportional to the problem or not. But based on you know personal stories I've heard from really good people, um, there's a lot of good can be done here. And do you think that the government, I know you kind of mentioned it, but the government needs to play a bigger role? Ultimately, we're all going to be better if we put the science into our decision-making with everything else, and that includes our government, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as much as a lot of people don't like to admit it, they have the ability to make decisions and, you know, with the funds available to them through what we pay for. So I think if they're behind us, right, that, that only helps. There you go. So, so yeah, it's it, it really is that um, it's a long-term thing. This one is not, you know, when we decided to do sewers, it was sort of uh, you're going to get cholera and die next week if you don't get this fixed. That that has a way of grabbing people that um, the climate will be notably different and make life harder in a few decades. Um, you know, it doesn't quite grab you, but it really is – good science. It's not perfect, but it's really good science. And we just know over and over again that when we include the science and the engineering with what we want and what we believe and what we care about and national security and jobs and all of that, that we end up better off. Right. I definitely agree. Well, Dr. Ali, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for dedicating your mental abilities towards this cause that hopefully is going to save us all from ruin at some point in the future. Well, Chris and John, thank you, and um, good luck commuting tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, Yes, absolutely. All right, thanks again. Take care. Welcome back. And as Dr. Ali mentioned, best case scenario, we shave 20 minutes off of our commute, and worst case scenario, we die in a fiery automobile accident yeah that's what happens when you don't believe in climate change you die in car crashes oh that's what happens when you don't believe in santa oh or the tooth fairy i don't know anyways um yeah thanks for tuning in this week guys i just came up with an idea here's what we're gonna do we're gonna do this if you come up with a way we can get this out get make this more visible shoot us an email and if it works 
then you will become part of the team. Okay, it's gonna happen for what like. What does that mean? You're gonna what be is part you, of the team. You're gonna be. You're gonna work for Smart People Podcast. Just you're gonna come idea. here and sit here with us. No, you don't have to sit here, but you'll be part oh, of it. Like okay. you can even see the emails. You can be on the squad, but it's gotta work. I thought you were gonna say we were gonna fly somebody out to Washington D.C., hang out with us, and all that kind of stuff. Maybe that. Whatever you want. But just like shoot us some ideas. I don't know anything to make it better. It's really I'm just trying. I'm trying to think as Roach said outside the box. Hey, we've got some people out there that are super creative, and I don't know. Shoot us a logo for a T-shirt. Shoot us a saying for a T-shirt. We are looking at T-shirts. Shoot us anything. Just send us something to our email, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Contact us on our website. Whatever. Just reach out to us. Show us your creative side. Help us out. So thanks again, and uh, make sure to tune in next week. Another awesome guest, another awesome episode.